Fro Faithful, should I play the open? I should. It's 43 seconds. So if you have a 15-second skip ahead, hit this thing three times, and then we'll get into me discussing sadness. Welcome to Fear the Fro. Shot clock by Mobley. Holy Mobley. Donovan Mitchell is eight for eight from downtown. There is Garland. Hit it from Euclid. Lobdale is pow. Oh, that was gorgeous. A Cleveland Cavalier podcast. What do we need to add? What do we need to give the coach? The game has come down to space and opportunity. We address that. Hosted by the voice of Fox Sports Radio. Yeah, his name is Bob Schmidt. Bob, Bob Schmidt. Schmidt. Spectacular talent. That guy is a legend. Got it, the buzzer! Welcome in. Okay. Let's get to it. You know who I am, voice of Fox Sports Radio, Bob Schmidt. You have come here. I am appreciative, especially after a loss. A loss is full of sadness. And this one, especially painful because two reasons. Now, you may ask yourself, Bob, why do you dislike the Oklahoma City Thunder? And the truth is, I don't, really. I project. I'm not ready to confront the possibility that Oklahoma City has made a leap. And that is rooted in jealousy because... We have a young core. We have the veteran in Donovan Mitchell. Some games, it looks like we've made that leap. Last season, you can make the argument that we made a very large leap in performance. But here we are basking in another loss to a team which has now defeated us three times in a row, is firmly in the playoff picture, is firmly in the actual playoff picture, not the play-in. Meanwhile, we're slip sliding. We're right outside the play-in at this point. And I'm living a fucking nightmare because who's looking down at us in the standings? The New York Knicks and the Toronto Raptors. <coughs> and Scotty Barnes is playing out of his fucking mind. I can't handle this. The only saving grace is that the Celtics, who started out undefeated and just murdering teams, have managed to drop two in a row. But in order to get those two losses, it had to come with a 76ers win tonight. I'm out here rooting for the enemies of my enemies because that's all I got. And worse still is that Oklahoma City, this may be the worst that they are for the foreseeable future. Consider this. Just forget Chet Holmgren for a minute. Kaysen Wallace the 20-year-old on the other side of the court for the Oklahoma City Thunder, the luxury pick that has the luxury of sitting behind Shea Gilgis-Alexander, he is presently shooting 68-55 splits while perfect from the stripe. And you may have lost track of it as Shea Gilgis-Alexander was destroying the Cavaliers in the first half, a half in which he missed only a single field goal attempt, but Wallace was the second leading scorer with 12 points on a perfect 4-for-4 four four from the floor. Now, he hit a bit of a wall after halftime. My point here wasn't to throw a parade for the rookie. My point was, he's arguably what? The sixth, seventh most important player on the Thunder, and we're going into an offseason next year in which they control four picks, one of which will be rerouted to Indiana, whichever the lowest of the four is. But... Four first-round picks. They end up with Houston's. If it's outside the top four, they end up with the Jazz's pick. If it's outside the top ten, and then they get whichever the better one is of their own pick or the Clippers' pick. So this may be the worst iteration of this team that we see for quite some time because Chet Holmgren is eight games into his career. Eight! And I know the story is Wembenyama, but there is nobody in NBA history who has done what this man has done right out of the gates. And I get it. Why the fuck are we talking about how good Holmgren's been on a Cavalier podcast? But I'll tell you why. The idea that Mobley and Allen 
were toppled by a one-man front court anchored by a dude who weighs 205 pounds and has played eight fucking games. I can't live with that. It has to be because history was made. Because I'll tell you what my mindset was coming into the night. Do you know that the Oklahoma City Thunder were coming off a game in which they gave up 25 offensive rebounds to the Atlanta Hawks in a loss? Six offensive rebounds by three different guys on the Hawks. Capella, Jalen Johnson, and Akangwu all feasted on the glass. And coming into this game, we had both bigs out there. Now, Chet Holmgren, the seven-block performance he had in the first game, it was great. But my feeling was part of what allowed him to go after those blocks, to close out on Evan Mobley, to roam away from the rim, was the fact that Allen wasn't there. And I was supremely confident that Allen, occupying the dunker spot, had the type of gravity that would force Holmgren to stay home more and take him out of the game. And certainly, the game began in a very encouraging way. Within the first three minutes, Allen had already forced him into two defensive fouls, simply by attacking the rim. The Oklahoma City Thunder have an offensive rebounding problem. They are dead fucking last in offensive rebounds per game and in the offensive rebounds they give up to opponents per game. Their offensive rebounding rate is second to last going into the evening. Now, none of that matters today because they got more offensive rebounds than the Cavaliers. If there is one advantage rolling out Twin Towers should provide you, it should be to take advantage of that particular weakness. Perhaps the biggest offensive rebound of the game came late in the fourth quarter when Chet Holmgren sprinted in, grabbed a miss, and flushed it home to prevent whatever chance of a rally the Cavaliers had as he took a six-point lead late in the game and stretched it to eight. It felt like a nail in the coffin. So I guess what I'm saying is Chet Holmgren has to become a generational talent in the front court because otherwise, I have to attribute blame to the people who hold the hopes of our franchise in their hands. Evan Mobley, Jared Allen, Donovan Mitchell... Darius Garland, goddamn you with those turnovers in the first quarter. So tip your hat to Chet Holmgren because he is the single most efficient rookie ever to average 15 points a game to begin his career. And I say that using true shooting percentage as the metric. The only one to ever even go over 70% besides him who averaged more than 15 points a game was Reggie Miller, just a tick below Chet Holmgren. But this is a kid who is averaging 56% from the floor, 54% from three, and 90% from the free throw line. If Mark Price saw this man in a parking garage, he would give him a hand job. Oops, that wasn't the right one. That's better. Think of how much of the first two seasons that this podcast talked about how Evan Mobley will make the leap when he has the strength, the lower body strength, and the weight to be able to hold his balance because it'll allow him to finish shots at a higher percentage. None of those excuses are needed for Chad Holmgren as of now. And certainly that is not meant as a barb to Evan Mobley. I thought Evan played pretty goddamn good tonight. Either him or Karis LeVert, whoever you want to attribute the fourth quarter to, those two were clearly the 1A and 1B of the fourth quarter. Evan led the way in scoring. 10 of his 22 came in the final quarter. And Karis LeVert 
just managed to get to the line. He turned what would have been one of those games where I was cursing Shea's name into a, well, you know what? In hindsight, Karis Levert got to the line 16 times. When does Karis ever do that? He plays that style where he's like leaning and herky-jerky and odd angles and not completely squared up. And generally, that is not a style that lends itself to getting to the line because so often you're leaning away from contact and falling away from it. And yet today... He got to the line when we needed him to in the fourth quarter. The Cavaliers went to the line 13 times in the fourth quarter to just four for the Oklahoma City Thunder. So say what you will about Shea Gilgis-Alexander, but the crazy part of that 43 points that he dropped on our heads is that he only had to give five of those in the final period, and he made just one field goal at that point. Most of his damage, obviously, was done in his 10 for 11 first half, but even in the third quarter, he was supremely efficient too. We can all acknowledge why this game ended the way that it did. I said this on Twitter at Fear the Fropod, but I don't think it's anything particularly profound. You cannot begin the game with nine turnovers and a 17 to two points off turnover disparity in just one quarter. That is fucking ridiculous. A 70 point first half from the Oklahoma City Thunder. A nine turnover first quarter. Now, keep in mind, the Cavaliers only turned it over nine times in one quarter, twice, all of last season. Darius Garland himself was responsible for five of those nine turnovers. There is not a player in the NBA this season who has turned the ball over that much in a single quarter. He is the only one. Meanwhile, on the other side of the court, the Oklahoma City Thunder ended the first quarter with a single Turnover. Now, I haven't seen the updated stats after this Cavalier loss, but I do know going into the evening, one of the good points for the Thunder was that they've been supremely good in transition. They were sixth in uh, points per possession in transition. They had the third most transition points in the whole NBA this year coming into the night. Now, Shea got nearly a third of his points off of turnovers. 13 of the 43 points that he put on our heads came off of turnovers. I say all of that. Just to frame the following point, it would be difficult in any game to defeat a team where the star player on the other side began the game 10 of 11 from the floor, but compound that with a 15-point disadvantage in points off of turnovers and shooting 38% from the free throw line. How the fuck do you pull that off? It's miraculous that after being behind by 17 points midway through the third quarter that this team dug down and found a way to fight their way back into it. But if there is something that is fatiguing, it's that I don't want to see this team have to do that all the time. We've seen quarters where the Cavs have locked in, dialed in, and held their opponent to 15 points. I know that it's happened at least twice in the last handful of games. This time, it took a second half in which the Cavaliers entered the second half down by 14, found themselves down by 17, and clawed it all the way back to four with less than six minutes left in the game. That is a miracle in and of itself. And this team is capable, but the teams that make the leap, they're not the ones who are sitting here on podcasts opining about the lack of consistency. They're the ones who figure out a way to string together top-end basketball for long stretches of time. Now, I spent my anniversary weekend with my wife in Charleston, and thank you by the way, for tolerating the lack of pod after the Pacers and the Warriors game. That is the reason, though. Uh, The low country, as they call it. And there are no hills 
to be found. We did a bunch of touristy shit. I went to see the, the USS Yorktown, one of the naval aircraft carriers that was involved in World War II in the Vietnam War. We went to, uh, we went on horse carriage rides uh, along the brick paved streets of Charleston. And all the guides would make the same jokes about the lack of elevation in Charleston. We'd go over a curb and they'd say, that's the biggest hill in the whole city. And we'd all laugh. <laughs> and then I would respond with a joke about Mark Price jerking off 50, 40, 90 guys. And none of them laugh. The reason I bring that up is because the Cavaliers are a team of peaks and valleys. Very high highs, very low lows. I could do for some middles or I could do for some Denver-like high altitude situations where your body acclimates because you're used to existing at that high level and there aren't low lows. Now, maybe this is the nature of Cavalier basketball, but I guess I had an expectation that coming into this season, we would see a little bit less of that. Now, in a week or in a few days, if we have another big victory against the Golden State Warriors, I may be backpedaling. But what you're getting here is a glimpse inside of my insecurities as it relates to the construction of this team. Because there are periods of the game where I very much think it's execution. And tonight, for example, with turnovers, I don't put that on JB. But things like what transpired against the Pacers, it felt like whatever the intention was in taking that time out, it had the exact opposite effect because the Pacers immediately went on a run and the Cavaliers, of course, lost that game. I remember those things. And this is a massive, massive stretch of games upcoming. The Warriors is always a huge game. The Kings, luckily, we may escape having to see De'Aaron Fox but that's certainly not a sure thing of a victory. That was one of the more stinging losses last year because it came on what could only be called some horrible officiating at the end. And I know you've heard that a lot from me, so you can take it with a grain of salt if you think I'm some full of shit homer. That's okay. Hopefully, hopefully. Can you hear me? I'm knocking on this uh, fake, you know, whatever laminate wood table. They can secure a victory in Portland before returning home for a Pistons game in the NBA in-season tournament next Friday. I think some time has to be spent talking about Karis LeVert today because what we saw from Karis LeVert today is a kind of a reflection of exactly what I would hope to get from him in situations where Donnie was essentially taken out of the game and he has been carrying a massive load early on in this season and playing the best basketball of his career. I did not think there was a way that Mitchell could ratchet stuff up from what he did last year, I expected him to kind of, I said it in the preseason, I thought that maybe he would take a slight step backwards in terms of volume and scoring so that Mobley and Darius could take that step forward. But at least over the course of this eight games, it really does feel like there is a distinct separation between Donovan Mitchell's ability to impose himself in a game-in, game-out basis and those other two guys. Tonight, however... When Donovan Mitchell was taken out of a game in which he struggled mightily from the field. Less than 35%, one for nine from outside the arc. But Karis LeVert was called on to do more. And to get 29 points, five rebounds, five assists out of him, he has been huge in the early part of this season. Against the Golden State Warriors, he deserves credit. Even though I didn't pot after that game, the work that he did to try to minimize the damage that Steph Curry could do, his hustle, his pace, his energy is relentless. Plus minus would tell you a different story tonight, but Karis LeVert was huge. Perhaps the biggest part of helping the Cavaliers make that a game at the end. So a lot of frustration. 
But still, some positives. We got to see George Nyang bully people inside early in that game. He went to the rim and finished over taller guys, Bertans and some of these. He threw a bow right into Chet Holmgren's chest that just folded him. For starting out horrible, remember, 0 for 8 to begin the season, he's starting to look a little bit more serviceable. Held up very well, was very stout against Julius Randle, who you can attribute the lack of success from Randall offensively to Yang's defense, or you could just attribute it to Randall being a disaster. He is off to one of the worst starts in NBA history. And despite that, the Knicks are still ahead of us in the standings. But again, I said I was going to end this on a positive note. Front court, solid showing tonight, 36 combined points from them. Evan Mobley, big in the late part of the game. And, and Allen, despite a relatively quiet stat line, only 14 points from him and you know, sub-double-digit rebounds. Uh, he did only play 25 minutes. Now, another statistical feat, which it was broken tonight due to a quieter-than-normal rebounding game from Evan Mobley. But I do think it's worth mentioning, in the previous six-game span, that is the most rebounds he's accumulated over six games in his career. 75 rebounds in a six-game span. Truly impressive. And for whatever struggles he's had, on the offensive end, and he had a doozy tonight. We bitch about bricking. He just straight up airballed a three over the rim from the left corner. So there was that adventure tonight. But despite whatever struggles he's had, jump shooting, he did flirt with the elusive 5 by 5 this weekend against the Indiana Pacers. 14 points, 10 rebounds, 5 assists, 4 blocks, and 3 steals. He was just one block and two steals away from a feat which is exceptionally difficult to achieve. And those combined blocks and steals, seven, he's only eclipsed that number once. And it was last season in his eight-block game against the Detroit Pistons. So while he may not be filling up the basket in the way that you hoped, he does seem to be taking a step forward in the other areas of the game, which I think is worth applauding. Because the other thing I'll say is for the people worried about Evan Mobley's offensive production, I think you're focusing on the wrong Cavaliers. Right now, you have Struess and Darius Garland both shooting badly by their standards, and they're doing it on volume. They're taking 13 three-point attempts between the two of them. Coming into the night, Darius Garland was shooting 8% from outside the arc. Struess was down sub-30%, 27%, somewhere in that range. If those guys creep up to even close to 35 to 40%, on that number of attempts from outside the arc, do you know how many points that will directly attribute to? Evan Mobley is still low volume, so I don't give a shit. If he does all those other things, I don't give a shit if he takes a big leap. I am much more concerned with a return to form from the Gunners that we have our, on our squad than anywhere else. And tonight, for Struess to bang down four three-pointers, that was a big development. Evan Mobley transcends just scoring. Max Struess, really, that's 90% of what he's here for. I've never been entirely on board with this notion. I know there's a huge portion of the Cavs fans who feel like if we are to win a championship, the only way in which that happens is if Evan Mobley becomes the best player on the team. I don't believe that's true. And honestly, I don't know if that, I even believe it's possible. I think if the early part of this season has shown you anything, is that there is a dramatic gap between Donovan Mitchell and Evan Mobley and Darius Garland. They are clearly a tier below for whatever skills they may have. This is not a skill comparison. This is a mentality thing. Uh, and I do think Evan looks more aggressive, 
But I still think no offensive leap comes without a certain disregard for playing within the offense. And I think the fact is that that's one of Evans' biggest strengths. It's like this whole debate about, oh, LeBron should have shot that shot. I want a guy who will do that in the game as opposed to make the right basketball play. At this point in the career of LeBron James, if people haven't come to terms with the fact that he's always going to make the right read, even if you don't trust the guy. And the Cam Reddish thing, it's just mind-blowing to me because you have a guy who's, he's a career 43% shooter from that you know coffin corner there, and people were upset that he took a wide-open look. Because LeBron didn't go up over a couple of guys. I just, I'm so burnt out on that debate. But I'm that's off the subject. The point is, I think we've seen enough from Evan to know that one of his biggest assets was that he immediately looked comfortable in an NBA game. And he could make the right basketball decisions. But sometimes I think that's a detriment to his ability to, you know, quote unquote, break out on the offensive end. So this podcast maybe went a little bit off the rails from what I was anticipating talking about, but that's okay because uh, I am going to wrap it up here knowing that I have another podcast dropping. I will be speaking to a Cavalier expert you all know. I think many of you enjoy his work, and I don't want to spoil it in case it all falls apart because oftentimes, I think right before people come on with me, they listen to the most recent podcast and hear me talking about jerking guys off in parking garages, and then the whole thing might not happen. But if it does, I will drop that episode tomorrow morning, and that will be a much more sunny, optimistic listen. So for those of you who stumbled through me essentially kind of saying that Chet Holmgren is more inspiring than Evan Mobley, at least that's the way it felt when I'm thinking back to the way I delivered that little monologue. And for those of you who listened to me talking about how I can't deal with ups and downs because I need emotionless, repetitive dominance, I can't begin to tell you how much I appreciate how much you have grown this podcast in the last three years. And we're off to a great start so far this season. And that is because of you and the other Cavs fans you know who you tell about this podcast. It's because of the reviews and the ratings that you leave. All of that is a big part of this. So, till the next time, here's a fact I learned in Charleston. After visiting the USS Yorktown, I was curious because the USS Yorktown was actually the second edition of that ship. There was a USS Yorktown 6, which was sunk in the Battle of Midway, and the USS Yorktown 10, which is the one anchored in Charleston, that was the next carrier produced. And those numbers represent, okay, well, there's now 10 aircraft carriers, uh, which the United States has produced. So it got me thinking, well, how many have there been? Do you know? Trivia for you. Right now, the U.S. has 11 of the 26 aircraft carriers in service in the world. No other nation has more than two. And over the course of history, 223 aircraft carriers have been created and commissioned. Of those 223, 81 have been created by the United States. Don't let it be said that nothing educational came from the Fear the Fro podcast. Also, interesting factoid from the Harry Truman Presidential Library. Did you know that he tried to join the KKK? I'll leave you with that. Good day. I'm blickety black, blacker than black, black. I'm blacker than black, yo, because I'm black and I'm black. Slivert, live to Mobley. Oh!
This has been Fear the Fro. If you like the show, subscribe and rate wherever you listen. Our guy, Bob Schmidt, always gets a reaction out of it. Join us next time for more Cavs and NBA coverage.